What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got uh, Jake Dello. Sup. Alex Audi. G'day. Hunter Marsden. Sup. And new member of the pod. We've got two members, one new ones, uh, one starting next episode, one starting this episode. Celia McDowell, all the way from America. Hi. We've got three quick hits today. What The first one, it's sort of a shout out or a, a sympathy call. I don't know what you want to call it. But the Global Peace Dividend Initiative is this big, I don't know, global movement. 50 plus Nobel laureates signed on to this letter. And it's got like 50,000 signatures. Uh, There was a piece in The Guardian about it. It's getting a little bit of circulation. But it's been going on for months, and I only just heard about it like a week ago. And it's all for this simple like three-step proposal. One, it's demanding uh, global reduction in military spending by 2% per year in all countries. Um, So everybody basically freezes their military spending just slightly below status quo Two, using the over one trillion dollars that that would save collectively globally um, by 2030 to address planetary emergencies obviously the climate crisis and then three cooperate to end the arms race uh, primarily u.s china but also u.s russia and this is very simple i agree with it uh, i'm going to sign the petition it's a good thing. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. Show notes again. It's called the Global Peace Dividend Initiative. I'm really skeptical that this is actually going to go anywhere. Like, I don't see how this, yeah. like, it's like basic collective action problem stuff. Like, if we could have frozen our military spending relative to our adversaries and they relative to us, would we not have done that years ago? It's like a more ambitious version of the nuclear freeze stuff from the 1980s, which did have effect, actually, but in a unique set of circumstances where it was a globally popular movement. It was the thing that everybody rallied around. And I like I wish I hope that that's what happens here. I'm not seeing how. This thing's been in motion for like six months and I just heard about it a week ago and I travel in these circles. Like I'm aware of what's going on in the activist world, you know? So like that doesn't bode well. It's also like not, there's not really anything new here. So this is like what needs to be done. But as usual, the thing that needs to be done needs a strategy to make it happen. What's the strategy, right? Don't don't arms race with rivals. 100% man. Cooperate with rivals. Sure. How the fuck are you going to do it? How? What's the strat? Like, get us there. Get me there. Help me get there. Because I'll I'll put it out on the pod, right? This is where I want to be too. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm not super optimistic about where this goes, but, you know, we'll see. It's early days. Um, hope springs eternal or whatever. Like, why didn't they release this and sort of work towards this more... I don't know, a few a few months ago. Because uh, now's the time where we sort of are already defending ourselves against imperial, aggressive imperialism in Ukraine. You know, is, is now the time to, to say we need to start the cooperation game? Yeah, Russia is an imperial power. That's the thing. So this is the problem with wars generally for 
progressive and anti-war causes, they create an environment where it's harder to push progressive and anti-war causes. So like as soon as the yeah. Ukraine war pops yeah. off, everything becomes harder for anybody who's like left or center left. You know, it's it's an environment that makes that makes reactionary politics uh, easier, more favorable. So it's difficult to swallow. But yeah, so skepticism abounds. The uh, second quick hit is from Lee Sien Lung, who is the pr prime minister of Singapore. He gave this interview, like a really long interview, or at least the transcript made it seem like it was really long, with the Wall Street Journal. And they talked about all manner of shit. It, it hit so many points that like I'm not going to be able to do justice to it um, summarizing it. But in the interview... Um, the reason, uh, and Hunter has some thoughts about this too, I think, but the reason why it's worth talking here is because Singapore often likes to position itself as like the mouse that whispers in the great power's ear, whether it's the dragon or the uh, eagle or whatever. But like, uh, that's how they see themselves, like the, the power whisperer. In this interview, and again, it's to an American outlet, it's Wall Street Journal. He says some things that are familiar and that are consistent with what you would expect Singapore to say, consistent with things he's said in the recent years. But he says some stuff that's new too. The tone is a little different than normal. And he's really breaking in certain ways from some of his past statements uh, about geopolitics and Asian security and his, his perspective on America and China. And like the biggest thing is that he says that the U.S. is not uh, what he calls a hyperpower anymore, as in hegemon, as in unipolar power, right? So the American quest to preserve primacy or hegemony is actually impossible to reconcile with the realities of Asian security today. And that's what he's really trying to drive home. And he's asserting that the kind of historical dominance that America has enjoyed the past 40 years if America tries to like continue imposing that or asserting that, then the region becomes more dangerous, right? You cannot do sort of hegemonic projects in an environment of multipolarity unless you want war, right? So he doesn't want, and he says correctly, that most of Asia does not want Sino-US rivalry. Uh, he's, he specifically name drops Australia as the only exception to that, which was kind of interesting. And then he refers to Asia as China's near abroad. I mean, it's not untrue, but that's like a formulation that's verboten in the U.S. for sure. Uh, and he talks about how credibility is important, but the, the, the credibility that matters is not toughness or resolve. It's actually the credibility of being consistent and stable and competent, you know? So there's a lot more I could say. I, I, it's, it's a really important read if you're an Asian security buff. Um, but Hunter, you parsed the hell out of this thing on Twitter, right? Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks for asking. So, yeah, I, I have many thoughts. Uh, some of like like what you said, a lot of this is consistent with Lucien Lung's past statements. You know, for instance, yeah. a foreign affairs article in 2020 called The Endangered Asian Century. Uh, Lucien Lung has for a long time, and this comes up in the Shangri-La Dialogue of 2019, but his remarks are often framed in terms of pushing back on U.S.-China adversarial competition. Uh, what he is stressing and what most Southeast Asian states fear is this U.S.-China competition turns into conflict, and that's bad for everyone in Asia. 
so as the prime minister makes clear, uh, the basic arrangement of hedging in Southeast Asia that prevails today, getting rich off of China while also cooperating with outside partners, not limited to the United States, has really worked to everyone's advantage. Uh, and so little states like Singapore are very concerned that uh, superpower, great game, rivalry will lead to conflict that drags all of these economies down and sends the region backwards. Um, what I found different, like you are saying, was the way in which he spoke to Washington and the Washington audience. And primarily, you could juxtapose this with an interview he gave to the Wall Street Journal uh, in 2016, in which he refers to America as indispensable mm. as a regional security provider and, and uh, trade norms setter. Uh, so the role of the United States in Lee Sien Lung's mind has changed dramatically. Um, and I think that's clearest in partly where he's pushing back on the United States' ability to uh, maintain credibility in, in its lapses of treaties and its inconsistency across multiple uh, presidential administrations, which we've seen in recent years. Singapore was one of the most vocal proponents of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and has really been harping on America's withdrawal from that agreement and what it's done, the damage it's done to American credibility in Asia. But the other point I wanted to raise, the passage that really struck me the most was where he's talking about the U.S.-Singapore partnership. And he says, Singapore and the United States cooperate closely. We think that's good that you're participating in the region, but that does not mean we fight your wars or that we ex are mm -hmm. expecting you to ride to our rescue should something happen to us. And what really surprised me with that is that actually Singapore has supported America's wars in the past, historically was very vocally uh, uh, supportive of, of the Vietnam War and America's counterterrorism uh, after 9-11, even sent personnel to uh, Afghanistan and the coalition against ISIL. So this is a, a major change in tone now to say that we don't support your wars and also to say we aren't expecting the United States to come to our defense. Uh, Granted, we don't have a mutual defense treaty with Singapore, yeah. but the partnership is is so close that, you know, we do have rotational access through Singapore. We cooperate on a number of uh, multilateral security exercises. Uh, so this this creates a great deal of distance in my mind in the strategic partnership with Singapore. Yeah, no, fair points. That was actually a good catch too. I don't think we're gonna talk about it this episode, but there is this thing going on with Ukraine where like the global South is really not on board, you know, or like at best they're ambivalent. They're definitely not team Western civilization you know, and there's a lot of historical baggage, anti-colonial reasons for that. Um, there, this is, again, like in Washington, notions of the liberal international order or rules-based order, it's as American as apple pie. It's thought of as a good thing, but like a lot of people were never on board with that project. And a lot of people focus on the downsides of what that was, was in the blind spots of that project. Right. Or the stuff that we did out of convenience means to an end, aligning with dictatorships, right, uh, imposing our preferences in a kind of bullying way. But in our minds, it's like, well, we're we're maintaining global stability and everyone gets to benefit or whatever. That's not the only narrative that is that is true. Right. And that's the problem. And that's why everyone's not necessarily on board. And I almost read Lee Sien Lung's comments, especially about the like, we're not we're not down with your wars. I almost read that not as a statement about like their historical position, which Hunter's right about, but really like we are situating ourselves more with the new third world 
or more with the global south or maybe more accurately like we want to straddle the global north and the global south the same way we straddle the great powers maybe that's the real takeaway you know um but regardless it was a really rich interview like i expect people are going to be citing this for a while yeah so third quick hit major controversy on the pod possibly the <laughs> we have a test run ongoing with a new logo for the show uh and i, I i'm curious what listeners of the pod fans of the pod think because that probably matters more than anything but i it's easy to undo so we could go back to the old logo if the new one is like not so hot <laughs> but it's reversible, guys. <laughs> nothing's in stone but uh i mean i vibe with it i'm not sure hunter vibes with it he called it on our slack chat he called it earth earth Crunchy. What is it? you had the bet you had like something really starker than that oh, though it was like like an earth day poster earth day earth poster day. plus communist international vibes <laughs> and like <laughs> and i don't know if the last part was pointed at all like i, I personally don't see an entirely bad issue with earth day slash communist international then <laughs> might just have to explain to maybe new fans of the pod that he is in fact not a marxist hashtag not a marxist yeah no. So like, what's funny is I'm not mad at that description, Earth Day plus Communist International, because save the planet, important, ah. right? But communists have fucking great artwork. I mean, like, they're really good at the propaganda, right? So like, I'm not so mad at that. And I will, I wove in not so subtly the like Elizabeth Warren, Liberty Green color. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It, so it's it, not mint after all. It, it's they, she branded it as Liberty Green, and on the color spectrum thing, where it's like hashtag BC four nine seven whatever, that specific code is like the Liberty Green color, but um, it's basically like a pastel mint. You know, I don't know. Um, I like it. I wasn't mad at the old logo either, though. Uh, it's just that on on YouTube, which we're now doing like uh, YouTube clips for the show, the the green pastel type color really popped. Um, and nobody can be confused about like the sort of anti-militarist politics of the show when you look at the logo, the new one anyway. So let us Maybe know. Maybe a question some of the listeners might have, Van, is are the old logo still going to be available on the merch? Yeah, uh, the shirts and hoodies, it'll still they're still the old logo options. You know, who knows in a, in a week maybe we just change it back who the fuck knows um <laughs> it just depends on what the people want right i was saying i think the mint is really cute and i love a little crunchy granola action yeah. i think that's very cute not sure how granola crosses over with communism like that crossover <laughs> i've never seen before but it's cute well, capitalist granola tastes better too doesn't it that's right yeah yeah whole foods competition breeds excellence and all <laughs> all right well let us know dear listeners what you think uh you know work in progress all right for our next segment true or false uh the idea is essentially i give you three headlines one of them is 100 percent true or at the very least has been reported by an outlet that I believe is reputable, the BBC. It's RT. at least not made up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sourceable, 
citable websites. And two of them, they can be partially true or just not true at all. So the three headlines for this week, man, which one of them is true. Headline one, Sri Lanka defaults on all external debt. Mm. Headline two, Sweden rejects NATO's calls for renewed membership talks. And headline three, breakaway Georgian region South Ossetia officially joins the Russian Federation. Holy oh, shit. I don't know. I saw that Sri Lankan debt was in the news. They're in a debt crisis. I, I had not seen that they've defaulted on all their debt. I heard nothing about South Ossetia, so I'm going to say that that's false. Maybe it is Sri Lankan debt. Have they defaulted? I'm going to say that's true. It's true as so far as it's been reported by a major reputable outlet. Look at yes, this. Well done. Well done. Winner, winner. Yeah, actually, that was that was supposed to be really hard because <laughs> South Ossetia is more or less going to. They were reported that they were going to. They just haven't officially done it yet. And they're not mm. recognized to have done it. Didn't so, make it into my feed, yeah. What is the significance of the defaulting on all debt? What will happen after this, do you guys think? What's the next step for Sri Lanka? So if, if, if Sri Lanka defaults on its debt, then it's going to have a hard time getting... It's, it's not going to be able to get private sector loans at all. And government intergovernmental loans are going to be not forthcoming either, which means that the IMF becomes the lender of last resort. And until the IMF becomes a beneficent social democratic institution, it's it it means that they're going to have to impose like austerity and deregulation and all these things that create uh, volatility in the recipient government. And that's how fucking Suharto lost power in Indonesia. It's like the worst thing you can do is impose structural violence on a society that's already undergoing like a fiscal crisis. And that's that's the IMF's like recipe book, basically. So uh, the Sri Lanka will be in a bad way. And that there's a there's a chance that it goes into a cycle uh, of domestic instability that then makes it vulnerable to geopolitics, right, between India and China, especially. Yeah, the other interesting um, uh, aspect of this worth mentioning is that, you know, you have these Rajapaksa brothers as president and prime minister who have been in charge of the country for some time since the end of the Civil War. Mm. Uh, very controversial, now unpopular leaders who oversaw killing of thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilians in this conflict uh, that plagued Sri Lanka for a couple of decades against yeah. the Tamil Tigers. Um, so you know, this instability could conceivably lead to the ouster of that government and the change uh, of the country's politics for, you know, perhaps for the better in the longer term, but in the near term, it looks very unstable. Yeah, yeah, not good. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. So for Stay Off Twitter, I've actually got three this week, but they're all super quick hits. In fact, the first one might be the longest, but a friend of the pod, Matt Duss, uh, Bernie Sanders, foreign policy advisor, he retweeted out a screenshot of this Bloomberg piece by Bob Kaplan, who is, uh, you know, famous geopolitical strategist guy, pundit. And the reason why this is good is not just the tweet itself, but because I know Bob. So it's there's like a personal thing here uh, and I have mixed mixed feelings. So Bob Kaplan publishes this piece called To Save Democracy, 
we need a few good dictators. And you can get from the piece the gist of it, right? It's like the ends justifies the means, and the means is always somehow supporting oppressors around the fucking world. So that's his shtick. And Matt Duss is saying, this is the same logic that previously led the U.S. to see Saddam Hussein, Bashar, Bashar al-Assad, and Vladimir Putin, among many others, as partners. Which is to say that, like, this form of reasoning is always a dead end. It always ends up being counterproductive. And that's a, a good takeaway point in itself. It ended up being like quite a popular tweet. But the interesting thing that rung with me was like, I used to be in Bob Kaplan's like ideological orbit. So like how much has shit changed? Like when I was at uh, CNAS, we had offices directly next to each other. And I used to pick his brain all the time about how the foreign policy industry worked because he had a model for how um, you could make a living as a non-scholar doing foreign policy shit, you know, and a lot of it. And, and like, I have a lot of respect for him as a, as a hustler, like doing the gig, you know, he's made a name for himself and he's made a good living. And it was always like his success as a geopolitical strategist that I really admired. And then the substance of his ideas, I was always like, is that good? I don't know. Like I always felt really ambivalent about it. And now it's becoming clearer and clearer with time that like, I'm just not on this dude's fucking wavelength. Like he's just wrong about a lot of shit, but he brands himself with eccentric ideas because that's what sells. And that's part of the success model here. So I thought this was a good tweet. Yeah, this is another tweet. I'd say that there's a good way and a bad way to make this argument, right? If you look at, you know, some of the themes we hit upon in uh, the Singapore prime minister's interview, it's it's a message you get a lot of times from partners around the world who aren't um, liberal democracies like Singapore, hmm. who push back on the framing of the Biden administration, of this conflict in terms of democracy versus autocracy. But uh, to say that we need dictators in our corner, I think oversells uh, the sort of counter argument that that let's just be authoritarian and be buddies with the dictators of the world, just like we were during the Cold War. Uh, hopefully we move past that. I don't know if democracy versus autocracy is the right framing for a much more complex world and, and geopolitical struggle um, to contain or constrain a few specific autocrats. But uh, I, I think going as far as saying we need dictators in our corner just uh, completely, um, you know, uh, takes the argument too far. Yeah. I mean, Singapore is a good example of that, too, like of, of, of the reality being more complicated and us needing to get with that, because like Singapore is a friendly country, a strategically useful country, if that's fair to say, and they are not a democracy but they have a social democracy without de electoral democracy, basically. I mean, like, they, they are not despotic. They don't rule tyrannically. There's not, they're not nursing a civil war or ethno-nationalism. In fact, the opposite, right? Um, they don't have, like, revanchist intentions against their, their neighbors. It's, in fact, the opposite, Right. So like there's many ways in which they're they're good steward, good citizens of their society and of their region. They don't have electoral democracy. That is a problem. That's not like nothing. But that's a way different thing than like buddying up to fucking 
Xi Jinping or buddying up to Putin or buddying up to Saddam Hussein, you know, all of which we do at various points. So like it's the, the gray actually matters, like being able to acknowledge that because you don't want to necessarily just completely ice out a country like Singapore. All right, second tweet from Chloe Ferrand, a senior reporter with uh, Climate Home News. And she just says, it's pretty awkward for Joe Biden, who has been unable uh, un or unwilling to deliver the climate finance he promised. Um, the U.S., when he came into office, promised something like $11 billion in climate financing. The U.S. approved only $1 billion in climate finance for 2022. In contrast, it green-lighted $13.6 billion in aid package for Ukraine. Um, this is a, a very like not surprising contrast. It, of course, America is going to be able to mobilize more resources for, resources for military problems than for non-military problems. It, it has always been thus right um but it's it's particularly stark in this case and the point should not be lost that like climate is the greater threat to america there are like there's there are things at stake in ukraine there are reasons to be supportive of ukraine um there's a basis to argue for even military support which we're already providing to ukraine Right. Um, so it's not to like denigrate Ukraine, but the idea that you can mobilize so much so quickly for this peripheral thing that is not core to uh, American existence or the security of Americans in any direct or concrete way. But then climate change, which does threaten Americans directly in a concrete way and is already impacting them and you can't do fucking shit about it or how it's affecting the global south. That is troubling, and that's why we are on this, like, fucking path to nowhere good, which was basically the gist of the Mark Beeson conversation I had yesterday on the pod. Uh, if you catch that, it's, it's, it's pessimism all the way down with that dude. Um, and it's for shit like this, you know? Got money for wars but can't feed the poor. Now it's you got money for wars but can't fight the climate, you know? But, I mean, they have money for both, right? But this is just a consequence of Joe Biden not doing what he promised, as opposed to one being spent on one instead of the other. They could do both, realistically. Oh, yes. It's Joe within Biden our capacity to. Yeah. It's it's not even like I feel sympathy for Biden in some way. Like this is the nature of the politics of the moment. Like we're all hostage to Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin. And Joe Manchin says yeah. he said yeah. specifically, we cannot afford to invest in infrastructure and climate change because we have to have money to fight China. Like he fucking said that in Russia, he added. So like his own reasoning about why he's cock blocking us has to do with ensuring we have enough money for the stuff like Ukraine. It's the, it's the reasoning of the militarists themselves, their logic that ensures that military stuff comes at the expense of the goodies, the public goods, the infrastructure, the money for climate financing. Um, it doesn't have to be constructed that way. That's how they're constructing it, which means as long as we do the military stuff, we can't do the other stuff, you know? It's frustrating. Final tweet, a fast one, from Ginny Hogan, who I believe is a comedian, 
uh, based on her twi- Twitter timeline. But she just says, pro tip, you can get through most conversations just by saying, whoa, at the right intervals. And not only is this make me laugh out loud and do like a spit take when I've read it, but it's kind of true. And it's little life hacks like this that I use to go from being like a look at my shoes introvert to a look at your shoes introvert, right? So this was, uh, I thought, a useful tip for those of us who are not interested in looking at people in the eye. I mean, it's all about context though, right? Because there's different kind of woes in conversations because you can either look like you're really interested or you're tripping out. You know, whoa, "Whoa, man. It's like, oh, whoa, dude. Keanu Reeves woe, yeah. (laughs) so we'll start with the first of three tweets and it will actually be your own tweet then that jake wanted you to talk about um so this is the tweet from a couple weeks ago about a where you said a democratic presidential administration with a democratic congress in power are producing a defense strategy that is copy and pasted from trump's but with even more threats than trump said so i mean jake can ask you specifically and and the the second part i just want to add the second part to the added then there's no way democrats are going to win or provide for american security by being less shitty republicans nobody wants to vote for that and there's no safety in it that was a zinger and i was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit yeah it's this is there's two different ways to read our political moment one is that we're facing such a nightmare on the far right that we have to occupy the center in order to win because we have to prevent the far right from getting power no matter what what i think what aoc thinks what bernie thinks what like a lot of the like justice democrats and progressives think is that that interpretation of like you have to occupy the center and it's a priority because we're facing an emergency with the far right that that's old logic that's the old politics that's not how it works anymore there isn't even like the the whole median voter thing is a is a myth that's not it's a construction by pollsters it's not real and so like occupying the center just makes you a less shitty version of the far right. The center is a reactionary position, right? You look at what's to your left and you look to what's to your right and then you react. It's literally reactionary. So being centrist is kind of being right wing. Um, And so that's not how you're going to win. And that's actually how you're going to Macron is dealing with this in France right now. Marie Le Pen is his creation in a way. The far right gets onboarded and legitimized and mainstreamed more by people who claim to be centrists, but who dog whistle stuff that's right of center. You create space that that the far right can latch onto. And all the while, you're failing to represent anything that would be associated with the left, as in workers or labor or equality of pick your variety, like the form of equality, right? Whether it's material or symbolic or identity-based or racial or whatever, but just equality, man, seeking progress falls out of the picture when you try to do this Occupy the Center stuff. So like not only are you betraying what Democrats are supposed to be about, uh, you're you're doing it in a way that's actually like strategically counterproductive. That was, that was kind of my point. And so we're fucked because nobody likes, this is why everybody hates the Democratic Party. You know, which is unfortunate because, like, I've been a Democrat basically my whole life. Yeah, that it's 
Thanks, man. That's more or less exactly the explanation I wanted. Cheers. All right. Sweet. So the uh, second tweet is from Hope Hodge Sec, who is a investigative journalist covering mil- military issues. And so this is a um, quote tweet of a thread probably most everyone who's on Twitter has seen at this point of 20 books to read in your 20s, and it's just a bunch of self-help shit and like inspirational stuff. Um, and her tweet is, counterpoint, read books with real thoughts within them in your 20s and stop trying to hack your life. Yes. Uh, I thought this was funny. This was another one that made me laugh out loud when I saw it. And it's because like, she's totally right. So I'm the ultimate life hack guy, you know, like I listen to Tim Ferriss. I'm always looking for like how to sort of self-help and improve and all that stuff. And I've read some of these books, right? Subtle art of not giving a fuck. Think again, limitless, all this bullshit sapiens. It's all so the problem with it is that like, especially in your 20s, this is when you should be like feeding your brain, right? Developing a worldview, a perspective on things. This stuff makes you self-centered and it doesn't give you an ability to actually think about things. It only gives you a way to think about life hacking. Again, life hacking is useful. You don't need to spend all your time reading these books in order to do it. You know, like self-improvement is not a vice in my mind, but if it's the only thing that you're willing to read, you're in trouble. You know, that's why society, that's why we're all fucked already. Like that's how our politics got fucked. You know, Um, it's too individualized. It's too egoistic and self-centered. And uh, even though you need some of that to get ahead in the world, if it's all you're consuming in your finite time on this planet, particularly in your 20s when your mind is really agile and growing and it's when you have the, the greatest capacity intellectually, and like to, to use that time on the subtle art of not giving a fuck, dude, you might as well just set your life on fire. I mean, like, what, what are you doing? You know, um, you need a perspective and you need skills. <laughs> and uh, if you have skills and no perspective, then you're, you're part of society's problem in my view. Cool. And the uh, last tweet is from Alex Dobrenko, who is an actor and comedian. And <laughs> his tweet is, uh, just had an audition for a male influencer and we had to say if we had a following. So I said, I have 10k on Twitter. And the girl next to me, who is famous on Instagram, said, ooh, old school nice. I walked out of the room, got in my car and left LA. Yeah. <laughs> So I've, I feel like this is probably very true. Yeah, like I've heard people reference Twitter like, oh, you're on Twitter still, like that kind of thing. Like, oh, I'd like my 2012 back. It's like this thing where, you know, you had celebrities even on Twitter in 2012, and now it's it's basically journal, journalists and think tankers and academics. Uh, it's certainly, I don't know, it's it's it seems to be like millennial heavy and Gen Z, not so much. Maybe that's my um, bias, but then like you look at somebody like me, it's like, Oh, I have a like good size following on, on Twitter by his standards. I have an influencer level of following, but then you look at my IG, I have like a hundred followers or like, I'm not even on it. You know, like I'm, I'm there, but I'm not there, you know, certainly not an influencer by any stretch. And yet that's where like, that and TikTok, I guess, is where fucking all of Gen Z is. So, Undiplomatic needs TikTok, doesn't it? 
And this, I mean, like more so than any other foreign policy podcast, we're about Gen Z, right? Or like we're more catering toward Gen Z than any other, anyone else in this like pundity space. But, you know, even we are not on IG in any meaningful way. So it would be good if we were. Yeah. All right. To be continued. We are on YouTube now. Is that right? Yes. And as of like yesterday, we're on YouTube, but we're slow getting clips up. We may do, we may clip some old episodes too, like old segments or something and just do like an audiogram. I don't know. Um, but yeah, YouTube. All right. Time for armchair analysis, where we look at a different article each week. So for this week's armchair analysis, we're discussing an article in the nation uh, called Tucker Carlson's flip. Let me read that again. Tucker Carlson's Flip-Flops on Russia Mask a Deep Militarism by, I might butcher these names, Tabita Chow and Ben Lorber. Mm. Uh, the sort of mini blurb under that uh, title line is, rather than seek allies among the far right, progressives need to advance our own vision of an inclusive common good against militarism and white nationalism. So this article ties in nicely to some of the discussions we had, what was it, two weeks ago, perhaps, um, about uh, the conservative split over Russia and Ukraine and how you tend to see some of these voices. Uh, Tucker Carlson is just one of the most prominent conservatives, but there are others defending or at least uh, pushing back quite heavily on this sort of uh, Western democratic progressive uh, effort to uh, roll back Putin's invasion of Ukraine and even taking Putin's side and, and some of the more far right elements are quite openly advocating for Putin's civilizational narrative and embracing the white nationalist cause. And this this article was interesting because it sort of parses some of these divides a bit more than we got into on that episode. I think it was number 114. So the authors write, if you squint hard enough, it might look like this MAGA Foreign policy aligns with critics of militarism on the left. However, it would be a grave mistake to treat the MAGA right as principled anti-interventionists who might join progressive efforts to reduce funding for the military and oppose the rise of militarism in U.S. society overall. Their goal is not to end U.S. militarism, but to seize control of it. So the way the authors frame it, these aren't restrainers, like we talked about on the previous mm -hmm. episode, yeah. but they're actually trying to redefine um, the American militaries and, and U.S. power uh, as um, not interventionist in, a, in the sense of like we should be involved in NATO enterprises abroad, rolling back Russia, uh, because Russia, as some of these far-right elements see it, supports the same causes of white nationalism, protecting Christianity, which, which Tucker Carlson has quite openly uh, spoken out for. And so the way Tucker Carlson and some of these proponents have taken this civilizational narrative is to say, actually, Russia is sort of one of us and let's not attack Putin. Putin's never uh, called us politically incorrect, uh, something Tucker Carlson said or, or something to that effect that yeah. just you know, blew my mind. Um, but there's this racialized component here. And so Carlson and some others have, have sort of shifted away from this uh, outright defense of Putin, but... Now they've sort of tweaked this argument to say, look, Russia's not the major enemy. We should be focused on China. China is the, the number one enemy. And you saw some of this actually after the 2016 election, when you see Fox News not going on about the Russian interference in our elections, but 
saying actually China's the culprit or even Ukraine actually at the mm. time. And this just bonkers stuff. But so Carlson is saying that Biden's policy confronting Russia and Ukraine makes China the winner and actually empowers China. And th this argument is just completely oversimplified. But in my mind, uh, and, and actually as the authors are arguing, there's a racial component here. Um, I realize I haven't touched as much on the sort of progressive statecraft component of this article, which Van can probably get into, uh, but think it was a great parsing of some of this conservative split that we've talked about before. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, Toby Chow is, I don't know if he's a friend of the pod, but we're, we operate in like similar overlapping circles. Um, and so he's like a virtual friend or whatever, but the piece was very good. The far right, the MAGA right, to some extent, the paleoconservative right, it's all militarist, right? They're not really isolationist. They're selectively against aggression in some places like Russia. But you have to read that in the context of Putin spending the last 10 years positioning Russia as the cultural symbol of the global far right, right? As the cultural symbol that Tucker Carlson identifies with, right? And there's nothing anti-war or peaceful or like even prudential about feeding clash of civilization politics against China. And this is the misconception about the Trump era, right? Like Trump was not isolationist. He was not anti-war. He was not anti-militarist, right? He was implementing a clash of civilizations, racially grounded project against China. And then incidentally against Iran, but it's not on the same scale because it's much smaller actor, right? Um, and so I just thought the piece was great precisely because it was explaining how we shouldn't misread the, the MAGA Tucker Carlson rights opposition to war in Ukraine. It's There's no need or upside to like a red-brown alliance. And like I think we said in the last episode, a red-brown alliance is just brown, right? And that's not what you want. So yeah, good read. Yeah. So, what do you what do you make of the argument for progressive politics? Because I, I mean, I think it sort of leads with that in the the blurb, but it doesn't really. Um, maybe they get into that at the end, but I, I think the focus is more on the attack than uh, on the constructive argument for how progressives can mount a counter argument. Do do you find this persuasive? Yeah, it's incomplete, but or in the within the piece, it's incomplete. I know from other conversations that I've had with Toby. Um, it's more fulsome, but basically like the agenda has to be in a simultaneously anti-war stance or an anti-militarist stance, but also a solidarity stance. And one of the problems with one of the, uh, you know, the, the anti-war left and the grassroots of the Democratic Party, they're focused in the, I guess, DSA to some extent, but like what they're focused on is not this sort of traditional view of like the solidarity that matters is the solidarity between democratic governments. And that's the basis on, and that's, that's how you get the argument that solidarity in a liberal sense is like, well, you have to go fight for other democracies. And it's like, yes and no, right? Solidarity is supposed to be to the people and to the people of the other democracies. Right. And so you have to, if you're centering the people, then you have to work backward and reverse engineer from the starting point or the proposition of like what if the end goal is to uh, minimize attacks and damage 
and deprivation th- that Democrats on the hum- human Democrats, like people who actively live in civil society, that they face, the danger they face. You have to be trying to operate statecraft in such a way that it minimizes their exposure to existential risk, to violent harm. The theory of the case is centering a different object, like the way we're operating statecraft in the normal mode. The object that we're trying to protect is a democratic government against an authoritarian government. It's completely the wrong frame, right? And so the right frame centering the people means that you do do some of the sanctions against oligarchs and stuff because they're targeted, right? Maybe you're a little more selective or a little more judicious, but that's broadly the right right thrust. You quadruple down on the green energy transition stuff because it's the it's the fact of Putin being a petro dictator that makes this possible in the first place, right? So we have to address that root cause type problem. But then the other thing that you see a lot of the anti-war people arguing because they're centering civil society rather than the government is to forgive Ukrainian debt, make it easier for the government to provide for its people, right? And then the smallest bit of that is possibly military assistance. But if you're truly anti-militarist, then like maybe you don't go there. But there's like, that's a gray area where there's a debate to be had, you know? And even if you decide, you know what, we need to send arms or something like that, they need the javelins, you're gonna, that's, that's a contentious point. But even if that's where your mind goes and that's the conclusion you draw, that can never be more than like a sliver of the solution. And there's no reason to focus that sliver. There's no reason to um, make it our focal point or any of that stuff. Um, And there's no point of even doing that. You don't send the javelins. There's no point if you're not willing to do the other things. If you're not willing to take on the petro dictatorship, if you're not willing to forgive debt, if you're not willing to accept refugees, if it's only arms, then you're only making it worse. Like that's kind of my read on what their stance is. Either I might be putting some of my own shit in there, but like that's the gist, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe just a couple of additional points that you made um, uh, uh, on top of their article. But it strikes me also that there may be this sort of broader dialogue and reframing here is opening up a couple opportunities, uh, a very small convergence between even some on the far right and progressives. Like, Carlson's remarks, he's saying, why aren't we seizing Chinese oligarchs yachts? You know, mm. there there is sort of some alignment in seeing, okay, so some autocrats and some oligarchs are bad. Uh, different groups will support different types of sanctions or policies or different varying levels of, of militarism to respond to that. Uh, but, you know, could you persuade someone on the far right, for instance, to take in political uh, refugees from China, for instance, based on political asylum, if they're persecuted, you know, is there any convergence there? Perhaps that opens up a a new conversation on support for more progressive policies that embrace multiculturalism as a way to confront dictatorships. Yes. So um, the you don't get those of the left or progressives or anti-war people get nothing out of being in alliance or alignment or circumscribing our own principles in order to forge a red-brown alliance, because that really does just become, once you start sacrificing your own commitments, what are you doing? Like 
that's what the fascists want in the first place, right? They're never going to deliver what your utopia is, but they're getting you to give up the things that you've gained politically for democracy, right? So the red-brown thing just doesn't work. But what I know Toby in particular has said it favorably is like, look, if some fuckhead like Josh Hawley from the far right wants to like co-author legislation that delivers, you know, progressive goals or, you know, makes progress on that, that side of things, then do like do it. Right. That's, that's the kind of means to an end logic that makes sense, but you don't need to um, forsake anything on your part in order to make that kind of thing happen. So it's like when there are true convergences of interest, so be it. Just don't do whitewashing or reputation laundering for the right. This was my, I mean, if you go back to like the Trump nuclear crisis stuff with Kim Jong-un and the summits, that was my real beef with the, all the summit diplomacy. It was that cheering on peace, knowing that peace wasn't going to happen because Trump didn't care about it, right, was reputation laundering for Trump at a time when he was dealing with all kinds of scandals and doing anti-democratic shit. And it, and it completely forgave all of the nuclear war precipice stuff the year prior so like you're doing reputational work for trump and you're not getting anything for it in return you know and it's like that was that was my proto position against red brown alliances i guess but like you know if if trump delivered peace in our time on korea it would be stupid to be opposed to that you would take it pocket it great but don't and he might have gotten the nobel peace prize too yeah and like don't don't cheer that part on and like don't if you're the nobel committee don't give him the peace prize right make him deliver first if that's if that's really the quid pro quo you're going for make sure you get what you need and don't give up anything that's going to help their cause because their cause is antithetical to your cause yeah well uh, i should credit you with selecting the peace this week um i have to confess that Finding the right piece, finding a, an appropriate long form piece that is substantive to discuss on the podcast is like one of the hardest things I have to do each week, <laughs> even though I, I love discussing it. Uh, you know, I, I'm just amazed by how much you're able to read and the uh, broad spectrum of, of sort of uh, sources that you, you source. Uh, so thanks for bringing this to my attention. Yeah, you bet. Uh, you know, maybe we should like solicit from listeners suggested reads each mm -hmm. week and just make it easier to, to pull from. So if you have suggestions, dear listeners, yeah. let us know. Yeah, actually, a couple of listeners already do send me stuff occasionally. Uh, mm. I just haven't chosen them. So apologies to listeners, but you know, we're open to suggestions. Because <laughs> <laughs> of shit taste. Hunter <laughs> just, just told you guys to get good advice. No, uh, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of friends who send me suggestions who listen to the pod. It's all good. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. This week on Ask Me Anything, you've got four questions. Mm. The first one is from a graduate student at the University of Barcelona who says, was bummed that you weren't at the International Studies Association meeting in Nashville this year. I had my fingers crossed you'd do a live podcast or something. Would you A, ever do a live podcast, and B, will you ever attend an ISA meeting again? Yes, I got COVID from it. <laughs> so this is the thing. It turned out ISA, it was, so it was in Nashville this year. It turned into a super spreader event. Every academic that I follow on Twitter 
has fucking COVID. I think Nexon might be like the only one who didn't get it. Um, so that is kind of predictable because we're not over, we're still in a pandemic, right? I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> so, so I'm not, I just got over COVID. I'm not super keen to get it again. And for that reason, I'm, I'm not super keen to, to travel unless it's like really worth my while. Um, I will totally go to ISA at some point in the future. Uh, next year, I think it's in Montreal. That's kind of attractive or appealing, but I don't know where we, it depends on where we are in the pandemic by then. Um, it's just not cost free to do travel anymore or not risk free, you know? Uh, and then as far as like a live show, uh, I'm, I'm open to it in principle, but like, you know, we can just, it won't add anything. Listener friend, it, like, it being live won't add any extra content. Like what the, the stuff that gets cut out. You'll hear us say like, um really a lot more it, and like. Yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're really not missing. Like you're not missing some real behind the scenes like hot takes. I mean, it could be. I've seen some of those like Pod Save America guys do live shows and stuff. It's not impossible. It, it, it can turn into a kind of performance, um, but it takes a lot of planning to do that kind of shit and as it is 80 percent of us are in new zealand one of us is in australia i mean this is like pretty distributed so if we did a live show it would be in new zealand or australia uh <laughs> probably not at well there's also you know the option of doing something live on youtube and then you know turning ask me any ask me anything segment into the sort of live chat function interesting so that's not impossible. And in fact, we have the technology. We have the technology um, to do that because now we're doing YouTube bullshit. So that's that's TBD. Who knows? Um, but yeah, good question. Cool. That sounds good. All right. The next one is from Emma who says, I saw you tweet out a two by two grid about strategies for American progressives. Can you either talk about that grid a bit or the problem with red brown alliances? I saw that you and a few others were negative about red brown alliances and I'd just like to hear you explain it. Yeah. So I don't off, off the top of my, I should have prepared for this off the top of my head. I don't remember even what the two by two grid was real quick on red brown alliances. The red is people who aren't tracking red refers to the left. Brown refers to fascists. Right. And it was in 1939 when Stalin formed his little, temporary pact with Hitler that completely screwed up progressive politics at that moment in history. It completely undermined the left, the whole communist world. Like they had no legitimacy except as part of an alliance against fascism. So for the communists to align with the fascists completely screwed over the left who had temporarily accommodated communists. It fucked over everybody. It even fucked over the communists. Right. And of course yeah. on the left, most of us are not fucking communists, right? <laughs> so, like, you know, a lot of us are actually actively, like, hostile to communists, you know? I don't know, man. Have you seen our new logo? <laughs> Touche. Um, but so, like, that's what we're talking about with red-brown. It's just, like, left alliances with the far right, um, with fascists especially. So, like, the color code is the shorthand for that. And the problem with that is really is that, like, if you're on the left, you're supporting democracy and equality 
and peace in you can parse what these terms mean or like get litigious about it but that's the goal ever since the fucking french revolution when the term left you know com comes into being it where that's that's the promise of the enlightenment that we're trying to like move toward right and so if those are the things that you're you're striving for and we've made as like as a liberal democracy in the west particularly in america we've made certain kinds of progress on identity equality political democracy we're just shitting the bed on economic democracy economic equality right and so like we've made gains on the identity politics side of pro progress and on of equality and what the right wants more than anything the post-liberal right the far right the fasc the fascism's strong but like those guys what they want is first of all to kill the identity political equality that we've achieved right like unwind gender equality unwind civil rights you know at least procedural egalitarianism you know it's and the the what they attack is the symbols this is why they have a huge problem with wokeness right and so what they are selling what the post-liberal right is selling to them a lot of like the the marxist left is like look we both hate neoliberalism let's take on neoliberalism together let's form a transpartisan alliance that takes on capitalism in the name of economic equality but in order to do that you got to get off your woke bullshit right you got to stop chanting black lives matter and you stop you have to stop showing symbolic solidarity right stop the wokeness that's the only way if you repudiate your wokeness that's how we're going to get economic equality that's the sales pitch the sales pitch is impossible there's no such thing as economic equality this is the essential problem of red brown alliances there's no such thing as economic equality without political equality right and political equality is the on-ramp to economic equality so like the gains that we've made where corporations feel like they have to be woke of course that's a bunch of bullshit of course it's not super serious but the the very fact that like they feel like societally they owe that or they have to be that way that's progress and that's the kind of progress that we can use as a lodgement or a foothold for making economic progress right so it's like we're the job's not done kind of thing right but what the right wants is to kill that shit and they use they use like anti-wokeness stuff in order to make that case and if they co-opt us we're going to never get economic equality because there's no such thing as economic equality within a white supremacist order or within a patriarchal order right and that's what they're pushing us that's what they want and that's not what we want so it's a loser's gambit basically i mean that's my, that's my take and then i forget what the other parts of the grid war but um can you think of any like concrete current examples of a red brown alliance so there's a new magazine called um compact magazine and it is a post-liberal magazine and it's mostly people on the far right like shit posters and gaslighters who are like the jordan peterson types um or like steve bannon aligned people and they've co-opted onto their like editorial board a couple people who are, have notoriety on the left um but they're people who are notorious like shit posters 
on the left and they're not like normal left people. They're people who are more aligned with like Marxism or communism. Um, and so it's like Slavoj Zizek and uh, fuck, I can't remember the other guy's name, but it's people who they're, they're serious about being opposed to neoliberalism. They're serious about economic equality. They want, they want a government that like works for workers, but they're willing to throw all of our like progress on gender and identity politics under the bus in order to try and achieve that. And they think the Democratic Party is basically the enemy. So like they're so left that they're right at that point, you know. Um, and so that's really what's at stake. It's like you can pursue um, progress within a kind of mainstream, like allying with the Democratic Party, basically, and push what you can through this imperfect vessel that we call the Democratic Party. Or you can say, fuck the Democrats, they're the enemy. And let's go find people on the right who are actually going to fight neoliberalism and uh, get us economic equality and then do that. And it's like a burn it all down kind of strategy. And um, there's there's other alternative paths, but those are like the two stark choices that we're kind of facing at the moment. And the Compact Magazine is an example of like an, a real world attempt to make the red brown thing real. You know, but also like let this is what the Toby Chow Ben Lorber, the nation piece we just went over, like they're also concerned about this. Like they also are, are, are telling fellow progressives like, hey, don't do not align with these post liberal right wing guys. They're not about what we're about, you know. Um, so, yeah, this is like in flux at the moment. That is very interesting. OK, I'll do the next one. The next question is from an anonymous person um, who says, I'm a former student in your intro to security studies paper, which I loved, and I'm working in New Zealand government now. At the time, you had us write an essay about securitization, and you presented us with some arguments against securitizing the climate crisis, but you never said exactly what you believe about securitizing environmental policy. Are you against securitizing the climate crisis? Is it not a national security emergency? Oh, man, this is like uh, someone quoting you out of context or something. Um, so I almost don't want to tell my position, but basically, yeah, I kind of am against securitizing the climate crisis. Um, and it's, it's important to understand that securitization is an admission of failure of normal politics. And clearly normal politics has shit the bet on the climate, right? Like we're doomed in a sense. Um, and so poli normal politics has failed. The problem is that securitizing something so big and not being able to actually resolve it anyway, because it's, you know, the hyper object or like however you want to phrase it, like you're going to get a lot of you're going to either have one of two things happen. You will dilute the significance of securitization itself so that you can never really mobilize national security for anything where it's needed in the future. Because it's just it's just words. It's just hollow bullshit. You you securitize this and you don't do anything about it. You can securitize anything and not do anything about it, right? So either it's that it's meaningless, um, and it weakens your ability to securitize when you need to in the future, or um, you're going to do what securitization does, which is emergency shit, right? Which is 
basically authoritarianism. It's you circumvent democratic politics, you engage in secrecy and militarism and that kind of thing, right? And I know this from my Pentagon days, the way that the Department of Defense thinks about climate as a national security issue is as a factor that stresses the security environment and makes certain geopolitical problems worse. And so what that means is there's nothing in the toolkit of like national defense or national security that can adequately address the climate crisis, right? So securitizing it is is a mismatch with the kind of problem that it is. You might be able to get more like the Pentagon greenwashes itself by promoting the environment as a national security issue. And it doesn't do fuck all except make the environment worse because it's like the biggest carbon emitter in America, you know? And so there's nothing to be really gained from the process. And there's a lot that could be put at risk in terms of democracy. And there, there are like larger issues. There's this uh, political philosopher at Georgetown named Olufemi Tairo. And he wrote about like uh, climate colonialism and the way that when democracies in the global North securitize the climate, they start, they, there's a huge risk that they will do it in a way that makes them like the military police for the global south. And so you're treating the global south instead of like sovereignly equal states or whatever. It's this object that you patrol. It's the favela. It's a global ghetto, global favelas. And you treat it like uh, this thing you have to patrol and police and contain. And that makes it a fucking hellscape. And that's that ruins promise for the that part of the world. And that looks a whole fucking lot like empire at that point. And so you get you're very quick to go from securitizing the climate to climate colonialism. Right. Um, so it's not to say that there's not an emergency here. It's not to say that normal politics is working fine. It's obviously not. It's that there's nothing to be gained or solved and a lot to be risked in securitizing it also um like if someone like the states started to securitize the climate crisis and patrol other countries who is going to like hold the states to that standard themselves because they're like certainly not keeping up their end of the bargain with climate change and the climate crisis yes i mean you're so you're gonna treat the global south as like this place that is the, the the ghetto that you have to contain or whatever, but then you're still the world's leading carbon emitter. <laughs> so you're not actually solving anything. You're just addressing some of the geopolitical symptoms of the problem that you're still contributing to yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I think that covers it. Um, the last question is from Alex. So oh. I just let him ask that himself. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is just what I chucked in the um, Slack thing. It was just, there was some talks by some New Zealand MPs about trying to invite Zelensky to address the New Zealand's parliament. Oh, and that comes yeah. in the back of him addressing like Australia and Boris Johnson visiting Kiev and stuff like that. Yeah. I was just thinking like, what are your thoughts on like, how useful is it to drag Zelensky around the world to, well, you know, like virtually around the world to um, talk to governments for no real reason? I don't get, I mean, you're, the way you ended that question suggests where your head's at, but it's, I don't get it. Like he has, he's, I don't know, first of all, how this guy's getting any sleep 
Um, he's on fucking calls and Zoom calls and going and visiting places all the damn time, you know, like a celebrity on steroids. And so it's great for like building his brand or the the idol worship of Zelensky. You need a little bit of that to like you need poster children of the resistance kind of thing. You can overdo it. And I feel like we are overdoing it. But more than that, like we need to be taking care of this guy's sanity and his ability to sleep. And we don't get anything out of like making him jump on a call with us that we couldn't have gotten out of reading a transcript that he did on a call with somebody else. Right. You think he's going to say something special to like the New Zealand parliament that he hasn't said to fucking America or the UK or any of these other countries that he's having to fucking field phone calls with. He's only doing this stuff because he's wanting to get more assistance and making sure that like global North countries especially are like on his side. But if you're on his side and you're willing to provide assistance, then save him the trouble, man. Like don't make him go through this bullshit. It seems like it's wasting everybody's time. It's very performative, you know? It is kind of amazing to watch the uh, theater of diplomacy right now and how many uh, political leaders are also traveling to Kiev to meet with him yeah. uh, in the middle of a war. That's um, also very self-aggrandizing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the best thing you can do for him is like, leave him alone and, and send him some shit. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, Care packages. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that is going to be the key because New Zealand... I don't know. Our, our political establishment would feel rather important having Zelensky talk to them in Parliament. And that might be the linchpin for their egos to send more aid. You know, so there is that might be the practical side to this. And to, to pretend like it isn't is anything except getting more aid is naive of us. But that might not be a bad thing in itself, you know? Well, it depends if that's what you have to do in order to unlock a, I mean, if national is going to be dicks about this, unless he comes, then maybe that's what you have to do. Or if labor is going to be obstinate, unless he comes, then that's what you have to do. But I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, they, they're already, New Zealand's already putting like sanctions on Russia and like they, they've made exceptions for Ukrainian refugees. And like, so they're doing things already. I just think this is, this happens all the time. This happens with Taiwan too. Like, solidarity if it's gonna fucking mean anything it should mean focusing on the other and care for them above all else right don't make it about you man you know and so like this is like put yourself in his shoes we need to make his life as easy as possible you know and that's not going to happen by holding carrots over his head and being like hey can you come and dance for us for an hour you know like that's not that's not doing it. That's not solidarity. You know, that's you. That's you being egoistic. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Uh, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. Uh, cottonbureau.com. We got some merch, new and old. And then we've got our YouTube channel. It doesn't have its own URL or I don't even know what it is. We'll figure it out. It'll be on the key, uh, show notes. Fuck it. I fucked oh, up again. Also, All right. <laughs> last, 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 last interruption. We've just posted the new logo up on Twitter. So go have a look. Go let us know. Oh, yeah. Yes. So check out that new logo. Um, Jake putting on the outro music of this one's going to be a little funky. We'll, we'll work it out. All right. Peace.